human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. It fell to John's place in all the stream of redemptive history to point out exactly who Jesus was with greatest immediacy. And that's what made John the Baptist great. Just as John the Baptist's greatness turns on the immediacy with which he pointed out who Jesus is, so your greatness, my greatness, turns on the immediacy with which we can point out who Jesus is. Today on the Songtime Broadcast, we wrap up our study here in the story of Zechariah and John the Baptist as we talk about how their witness, their testimony of the work and ministry of Jesus is what makes them great, and it's also what can make us great as well. Stay tuned for that message from D.A. Carson. But first, we're talking once again with Bob Lapine about the, the emotions of Christmas. We've talked about the negative side of it, but today we're going to be talking about the positive side of the emotions of Christmas as the many voices come together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Not too long ago, we were talking about the book of Ephesians, and in that book, we have the fruit of the Spirit laid out for us, which is love, joy, and peace, patience, long-suffering, and the rest. But the first three are really the parts of this theme of Advent, as we talk about hope, uh, uh, peace, joy, and love. When you think about all of those, you find that they are something that is overwhelming, aren't they? They're emotions that that you really can't quite quantify. There's times that you just feel overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed with peace, overwhelmed with love, and you can't quite explain it. It's a lot harder to feel those emotions when you're trying to choose to be joyful, choose to be loving, and choose to be hopeful and peaceful. It's hard to force yourself into that emotion, and that's what we're talking about this week. So we're joined once again by Bob Lapine. His book is called The Four Emotions of Christmas, and and the fourth here that we're talking about is joy. And Bob, this is an emotion that is infectious, and yet it's very hard to kind of hone in and make yourself feel joy. Yeah, joy is infectious. And here's the thing, if we're thinking joy comes from um, holiday traditions— no, I would say it this way. In fact, I mentioned in the book that I had a British British friend years ago who said to me, um, the Brits used to have an expression where they would say, may the haps be with you. And that was an expression to say, may things go your way. May good things happen. So the haps was talking about your what happens in your life. And yet we, we connect the word happiness with happenings, though there's a same root word there, right? And And our happiness is often connected to what's happening in our lives, our circumstances. Joy is something deeper and more transcendent. In fact, we can, in the midst of profound sorrow, still know joy if we know Christ. And so this last chapter in the book is designed to say, uh, the emotion of joy, which is the one for which your soul is longing, uh, and you're wondering, why am I not feeling it? It's because you're looking for something to generate joy that's never going to generate joy. The only thing that will really generate real joy in your life is to be reconciled with the God who made you. And the the story of Christmas is the story of the rescue mission where God looked at our plight and said, the only way for these people to be reconciled is for my son to come and to live a perfect life and die a death in their place to so that God and sinners can be reconciled. That's what brings joy to the world. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm pointing people here in the book. 
Yeah, I love how you do that. You point them to the gospel. Actually, the the gospel invitation is so clear and concise. And that's something that we all need to hear. Something we do on the broadcast all of the time is remind our listeners that they need to hear the gospel just as much as their friends and family and neighbors need to hear the gospel. It's a great reminder to keep the main thing, the main thing of this season, that it is about Christ and the gift of his sacrifice to come into this world. And with that, find our joy and satisfaction in the cross and the empty tomb. This is the gospel message that we should be exuding in such a way, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, that other people, I will substitute hope for joy, that they might see the hope that we have or the joy that we have in Christ and ask us to give an answer for it. This is what we want to be able to do in this season is spread the infection of joy that comes from Christ. Well, I'm I'm fist bumping with you, right? A virtu- virtual fist bump on that one because I I agree a hundred percent. I tell people at our church regularly we have to daily uh, repent and daily rebelieve the gospel. Martin mm. Luther is I, I've never found this in the primary sources, but somebody quoted Martin Luther as having said, "Every week I preach the gospel because every week I forget it." Mm-hmm. And, and Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, this last letter, writing to a pastor, he says, remember Jesus Christ. And then he goes through and outlines the gospel. You'd think, well, he's a pastor. He's not going to forget Jesus. No, that's that's a, an issue for all of us. And that's why we need to rehear the gospel and rebelieve the gospel regularly. I'm right there with you. And then we need to keep it on our lips, not just in our heart, but on our lips and be sharing the gospel regularly with others. Yeah, and it won't be readily on our lips if it's not at the forefront of our eyes and in our ears and in the the, the front of our brain. You know, we have to have that something worth thinking about. It's something we always encourage. This is not just a book to give out to uh, the, your friends and your, your family, your neighbors. This is a book for our listeners to read themselves so that the reminder of this season is fresh on their heart and fresh on the tip of their tongue. Yeah, and and that's my hope and my goal. And in working with Ten Publishing, the the, the company that put this together, uh, we're really I'm as excited about the strategy as I am about the book. Mm-hmm. Just think if every one of your listeners would think of five or ten people that they could reach out to during the holiday season, and in a very comfortable, non-threatening way, say, "I made you some cookies. I've got a book for you. We'd love to have you as our guest at our Christmas Eve service." If if you invited 10 and one of them showed up, well, if everybody did that, Christmas Eve would be a whole different service and people might come to know Christ at Christmas. Let's make that our goal this year. We've been talking with Bob Lapine, who is the author of The Four Emotions of Christmas, not only a great resource for us to read, but a great way to invite our friends to know the true meaning of Christmas and to share this book. Buy it in bulk, pass it around, and share it with your friends as a resource so that they might know the gospel and do so with, as Bob said, a plate of cookies, as well as an invitation to come and join you, whether it's at your own table or at church, as an opportunity to hear the gospel once again. And Bob, it is a true privilege to have you with us. It was a real joy to to share this story with you and to hear uh, your presentation of the gospel. Thank you so much for being one of the many voices for that one message. Adam, bless you. Thank you for the great work of Songtime, and uh, uh, just pray your God's blessing on on the ministry and on the work that you're doing. If you're looking for a last-minute gift, well, it might take us a little while to get the book to you, but this 
is an excellent resource that we'd love to make available to you and your loved ones. It's called The Four Emotions of Christmas by Bob Lapine. You can find out more information about the book by giving us a call 508 362 7070. That's 508 362 7070. Or head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we are wrapping up our week-long study, looking at the Song of Zechariah, this prophecy that he makes about what his son will ultimately accomplish, not in his own work, but in pointing to the one who will be the Savior of the world. Uh, When you look at this song, it really doesn't describe John's ministry as much as it describes Jesus' ministry, but John's excitement, or, or Zechariah's excitement, is really that his son, would be the forerunner of the Christ. And that is what makes John the Baptist so spectacular. It's why he's included in the gospel narrative. It's why you can't tell the story of Christmas. You can't tell the story of Jesus without remembering John the Baptist, because this is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. He is, in his own right, an answer to prophecy. And in today's message, D.A. Carson continues to unpack how this story ultimately culminates in John's great legacy, but our greatness as well. What we have found is that the major turning points in the Bible point to Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Zechariah understood it. He understood that this baby boy of his was part of the plan that pointed to Jesus. So from David to Jesus, from Abraham to Jesus, what we find is that the major turning points of the Bible, the major institutions, come through the pages of Scripture and empty into Jesus himself. So it is in this passage. Number two, Jesus is likewise central in Luke's argument. A superficial reading of chapter 1 could maybe make you think that, oh, there are two rather special births here, John the Baptist and Jesus. Both have angels, both are well-nigh miraculous, one so late in a couple's life that it can't be an ordinary thing, and the other one a virginal conception. There, There are two, isn't that nice? But when you read more closely, you discover that one serves the other, one announces the other. One is the focal point of all of history, the other is pointing him out. And this focus on Jesus in this respect is absolutely central in Luke's argument. It's central here. And as the story unfolds, you have the birth of Jesus being made much of in the next chapter. Then John the Baptist, when he begins to preach, doesn't point to himself, but points to Jesus. And then Jesus' ministry begins in chapter 4 after his genealogy is given. Not John the Baptist's genealogy, Jesus' genealogy. And then all of his ministry is Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry. As early as Luke 9, that's barely a third of the way through the book, Jesus resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem. And all the rest of the book from Luke 9:51 on is Jesus going up to Jerusalem in the full knowledge that why he's going up to Jerusalem is to be killed, tortured, crucified, killed and then rise again the third day. That's the whole Gospel of Luke. It's all about Jesus. So, Jesus is central to the Old Testament argument. He's central to Luke's argument. And then third, John the Baptist thus illustrates a crucially important point. Human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. What is John the Baptist's greatest importance? In what does it lie? Let me give you my card, prophet of the Most High God. Isn't that what this father says? And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High God. And of course it would be the truth, for goodness sake. But it entirely misses the point. It's not so much a status as a function. 
And the function is to point to Jesus. In Luke's entire narrative, that is the importance of John the Baptist. We, 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 we really don't know much else about him. And you know, that's a common reality in all of the Gospels. There's a remarkably interesting passage in Matthew chapter 11. I don't have time to unpack it in detail. But there, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So in Jesus' mind, John the Baptist is greater than King David. John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. John the Baptist is greater than Solomon. John the Baptist is greater than Isaiah. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says. Barring, of course, himself in the context of the argument. And the context of Matthew 11 shows why that's the case. Because although Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and David and so on all pointed to Jesus in some sense or other, only to John the Baptist was it given to say, there, that's the man, that's the Lamb of God, that's the one whose, whose sandals I'm not worthy to undo. He must increase, I must decrease. It fell to John's place in all the stream of redemptive history to point out exactly who Jesus was with greatest immediacy. And that's what made John the Baptist great. And then, in the same verse, Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, Jesus adds, and indeed, I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That means, if you're a believer today, if you're in the kingdom in that sense, you're greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was greater than King David. So you're greater than King David. Now, obviously not greater than King David on every conceivable axis. It, it, it still is a context that is, that is making clear the axis of this comparative greatness. What this means is, just as John the Baptist's greatness turns on the immediacy with which he pointed out who Jesus is, so your greatness, my greatness, turns on the immediacy with which we can point out who Jesus is. In one sense, we can say more about who Jesus is than John the Baptist could. John the Baptist was going to lose his head pretty shortly. He's about 30 years old when his public ministry begins. And it doesn't last more than two to three years before he's executed by being beheaded under one of the Herods. So he never lives to see Jesus' death and resurrection. He never lives to see Pentecost. But any Christian today knows about Jesus' death and resurrection and Pentecost. And as a result, we can point out who Jesus is with greater clarity and immediacy than even John the Baptist. And that's what makes us great. So the question comes to us, where, where does our self-understanding lie? Where does our self-identity lie? You're the biggest hunk, the most beautiful chick, the best income, the longest life, the tallest person, the greatest number of degrees, the happiest singer, whatever. And all of these places, all of these things have some sort of place and role in the scheme of things. It's all part of life and, and family, all of which things are talked about in one fashion or another honorably in Scripture. But what gives us our ultimate importance is our supreme privilege of pointing out who Jesus is. It's illustrated in John the Baptist. John the Baptist illustrates this crucially important point. Human beings discover their greatest importance in pointing out who Jesus is. And last... The coming of Jesus, this Jesus to whom John the Baptist points, this Jesus whom we celebrate at Christmas, this Jesus who comes to give salvation. He comes to give salvation, we're told, through the forgiveness of sins, verse 77. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, verse 79. To guide our feet into the path of peace, verse 79. In other words... At this season of the year, we'll be told again and again and again in shopping centers and with Muzak coming in here and there and, and on television and elsewhere that season is the season for giving, which from one perspective means the season for buying. 
Or we'll be told season is the season for being nice to people, for loving one another. It's the Christmas spirit, do, 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 do you see? There's some truth to that. It is the season to remind us of a certain kind of giving. And, and of course we should be nice to each other, not just at Christmas. But what Christmas is really about is the coming of the God-man to bring us salvation by the forgiveness of our sins. Christmas is preparation for Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost for salvation and in that frame to give us peace. Suppose you wanted to have those words used for John the Baptist used for you as well, that you were the greatest to ever live. I mean, those are some pretty profound, that's a title that uh, any one of us would be honored to wear. We could put that on our handle for our business card. You could put it on your social media page. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the greatest person to ever live. But what is it that made John the Baptist so great? Uh, Let's see if we can duplicate it, so therefore we can be called great as well. Well, he, he wore camel's hair clothes and ate locusts and honey uh, as, soon as, as soon as you start to look at his resume, you're probably thinking, actually, I don't think I really care too much for that title anymore. But fortunately, it's not all of those attributes that made John the Baptist great. In fact, the thing that makes John great is that he is pointing to Jesus as the Savior of the world. What a true honor for, for him and for his father, Zechariah, whose pride and joy, his son, got to be the forerunner of Christ. The same can be said of the story of Mary. It's often concerned, that, like, well, what is it that makes Mary so blessed? We could say great. What is it that makes her so unique in the story? Well, she got to bear the Son of God. She got to be the mother of Jesus. But that is not what the text actually says. Where Elizabeth is congratulating Mary, she makes sure to point out that, that Mary believed God and she did what God had told her to do. We see that reiterated again in uh, Luke chapter 11, where a woman comes up to Jesus and says, uh, Blessed is the woman, the woman whose womb you were born and the breast that you drank from. And Jesus quickly corrects her and says, No, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. What made Mary great? She listened to the, the word of God, delivered through the Gabriel, the angel, and she did what God called her to do. That's it. That is true obedience. That is faith. And it is what made her great. And it's what can make you great as well. It's not just the story of John the Baptist. He pointed to Jesus. It's also Mary who obeyed God and it was counted to her as righteousness. If this is an encouragement to you, if these are achievable goals that you can actually meet, then you can be great and you can be blessed. And in that, uh, I think you can be encouraged as well. If we have been able to be a blessing to you by doing what God has called us to do, and if we can be considered great by pointing people to Christ, would you let us know? Would you send in your end-of-the-year donation and help keep this broadcast on the air? As we continue to plan out our year ahead, we really do need your support. In fact, without it, we may not be able to continue. If you have been blessed, if you feel great, then give back to the Songtime Ministry by writing to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, 
or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or you can look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. <laughs>